and trying to, you know, doing a one-on-one training session mm-hmm. is, one, is one thing, but like programming for a hundred guys is a whole different story and understanding, you know, their practice requirements and film requirements and, you know, fitting the stress of training into all that. Hmm. Um, so that was a cool, like holistic big picture yeah. experience. Um, in I guess it was August, August or September, started working with the U.S. ski team, just going on trips as a PT to uh, provide coverage for their cross country team, and then now I'm working with the half pipe team. So doing nothing strength and conditioning related. Correct. With more uh, treating injuries. Basically. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of just like keeping people healthy and. Um, feeling as good as possible during competitions uh when there has been injuries that are more involved or longer term we'll do you know rehab progressions to get Mm -hmm. back to to training back to sport but definitely the focus is on pain soreness management wow yeah i mean i'd love to talk about that too yeah and how you manage that and obviously these are olympic bound athletes or they so a lot of them have gold medals. So they already have gold yeah, medals. Like oh, wow. they're the you know, US ski team. Um, some have Olympic experience and medals. Some are younger, like just entering the um, full like professional ranks. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's the, the highest level of, of skiing for, for all of them. So what modalities would you do? We could just talk about it now, but what would that look like? at that level, I guess, to, I, wait, I don't know what, whether you say prehab or decrease soreness or whatever. Yeah. Uh, what does that look like? Yeah. So a lot of it is like hands-on soft tissue, um, you know, treating tight, sore muscles. So, and it's very different for different disciplines in skiing. Mm-hmm. You have the cross country athletes that are doing two, three hour training sessions a day and doing the same motion. So they're just like that chronic kind of repetitive mm-hmm. overuse soreness and injury and then there's the half pipe crew that are going 35 40 feet in the air Jeez. and you know taking the impact of landing so same thing a lot of it's hand-on soft tissue manual therapy work um, with some like education around training decisions and managing stress throughout a season and managing load throughout a, a training camp mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if there is a sprained ankle or tweaked shoulder or something, we'll try to diagnose and address it. But now do you enjoy the manual therapy part of things, the recovery modality part of things, or would you rather be training? You know? Yeah. Um, I actually have, and I didn't really know what the balance was going to be going into it. Um, cause in my everyday practice here, it's very much exercise based. Right. Like I was just with a client for an hour and we were in the weight room the entire time. Wow. Like I didn't even open my table up. We okay. just lifted and, you know, gave regressions to, to fix movement that we wanted to, but understanding that these athletes don't need more load. They're not, we're not trying to make adaptations mm-hmm. in the middle of a training block. Um, so me giving them exercises to do is overkill and counterproductive yeah Yeah. um and understanding that there is like a lot of value in manual therapy and like therapeutic touch to calm the nervous system down and help them feel better because they're pushing their bodies like to the limit yeah um 
because going into it, I was very like, oh, if we're not exercising, we're not making adaptations, like I'm not giving them good care. Um, And so this gave me like a good perspective that that's totally necessary in certain circumstances. Yeah. Um, Whereas maybe the, you know, the client I'm seeing on a day to day basis, that's not training like an Olympic athlete, they could use a little extra dose Mm -hmm. to have a positive adaptation Mm long-term where the the more training side of what I do comes in. Yeah, that's interesting, that perspective, because maybe, I mean, I guess was very closed off with this whole, you know, foam rolling, Theragun type thing. But I guess, like you said, the whoever you're working with and their workload is probably huge because mm-hmm. you give it more, right? Yeah. Everything is stress. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and that, was, that was my perspective, too. You know, in my first couple of years out of school, I was like, I'm never going to use, yeah, never gonna use manual, never going to prescribe foam rolling. And when you ask me what's, what's something I'm passionate about, and I think I'm realizing more and more the need for nuance and perspective and hmm. context to everything. Um, do I think those passive things are wildly overused? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. And for people that need a little more, uh, they can handle load and they need it to adapt, then the passive modalities aren't serving them long-term. But for people that are, you know, they're hitting their load tolerance and then some, it's, you know, I need to put my ego away of trying to load people up and understand that communicating to someone's nervous system and how they feel and giving tissues just like positive interaction is super like valuable. Wow. But it would be different. So you're, how often are you with the ski team? Uh, it depends. So I go on different trips. So two weeks ago, I was with the half pipe team in Calgary for seven days. Canada? Canada. Okay. Yep. And then here in like 10 days, I leave for Switzerland oh for like 10 gosh. days. And then we'll go to the country of Georgia right after it. Jeez. So it'll be like a three week stint. Um, with the team and then I'll come back. That travel is kind of fun though. Oh, the travel is awesome. You like it? Yeah. That was always like a kind of pie in the sky goal for yeah. my career. And I didn't really know how I was going to incorporate travel and what I do. And so this is like a now you're traveling. perfect traveling. How did, how did you get hooked up with the U.S. ski team? Uh, when I moved back here last spring, I'd actually applied for a S&C internship with them um, and it didn't work out. So I did the one with oh. the football team. But I, I met people that were plugged into um, just called the med pool. So okay. physical therapists, athletic trainers, some massage therapists, um, probably some chiropractors too are all in like a med pool that travels to these different trips because the U.S. ski team doesn't have the staff permanently to like send with all these teams. So it's like an as-needed type of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So are you still as-needed or are you – you're on the team. So I'm still, I mean, I'm an employee. Like I'm a contracted, not employee. I shouldn't say that. I'm a contracted, um, you know, independent provider. Sure. So, wow. Yeah. So your time at the U, your, I mean, you obviously did that because you like somewhat of strength conditioning. Uh, I mean, tell me your time at the U. I don't think we've ever had the chance to, to talk about that. Yeah. Um, and the motivation behind that was, I mean, my, I had my CSCS a couple years ago and how I treat is very exercised, progressive loading, performance-based. Yeah. Um, 
but I hadn't worked with that level of athlete that consistently. Um, and again, like in that full team holistic manner. And so I think the, that there's such a huge gap a lot of the times when a higher level athlete goes to see any kind of medical provider uh-huh. um, and describes to them what their training is like, but the provider's never done it themselves or especially hasn't, you know, programmed and coached on the floor and understanding like the bigger picture of it. Mm. And so I wanted to fill in that experience and knowledge gap on their performance side. Um, so when I do work with these higher level athletes, hopefully in my physical therapy practice, um, they can like trust and know that, you know, I've kind of been there, done that and, um, can legitimately understand where they're coming from. Right. Uh, so that was the motivation to do it. And it was, it was pretty like time consuming. It was 30, 35 hours a week. Um, lift in the morning, run in the afternoon, depending on the phase wow. of the summer. Um, a lot of it was not glamorous, like, you know, setting up the weight room, cleaning the weight room, putting in protein You would shakes. have to do all that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, which, like, I had no issue sure. with, with doing it. It was cool to be around it and, again, see, like, the big picture of what a – What they did. Yeah, yeah. Was it anything groundbreaking or anything that you were like, oh, like, just blew you away? Um, or was the programming kind of similar to what you've seen or read? And Yeah, and honestly, that was my first experience. And, I mean, I did high school strength training. Okay. But as far as, like, higher-level programming or even, like, different types of programming. This was it. The Utah football team was my experience with it when I you, was you there as an athlete. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I had that as kind of my reference point. So it was nothing, like, crazy new. A lot of the same um, – you know, same lifts, same progressions. That when you went to the school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're, we're still like staples, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're squatting, we're benching. Um, some like hang cleans was like mm-hmm. the biggest Olympic vi- variation. Uh, but in talking to coaches that had been there when I was there as a player seven years ago, mm-hmm. um, and then talking to athletes that had kind of come up through the program, they described a shift more towards understanding like managing overall stress and you know pulling back on some days Mm. and not going quite as old school with you know we're going to grind through this and you know work on that mental toughness piece yeah um which i think is just getting more prevalent absolutely in in high level sport understanding you know how productive is the stress and fatigue that we're gaining from this session um, they have a new sports scientist who was a strength coach when mm. I was playing there. So he's transitioned in the, the strength science okay. role. So that like continuity, I think really helped That's huge. Um, progress things towards the tracking load, um, tracking injuries and blending that into the culture of like grind it out, which has some, you know, merit. Sure. To, yeah, yeah. Do you um, think that that, that uh load management obviously is highly important but will it ever or should it now i mean i I think that it should now but trickle down to the high school level because i don't think there's much load management going on in the high school level (laughs) you know what i mean yeah or the youth level or the youth level (laughs) yeah so how do you how do you educate somebody at that level to manage their load if they're doing it at such a high level right i mean it's like with everything if they have all these strength coaches at the high level why don't they have it at this lower level 
I, I mean, I think for high school, money is the biggest thing. How did they track training load? Uh, the catapult. Okay, so the thing you the wear GPS. on the, on the yeah. chest. So catapult was like the on-field, so velocity, high-speed cuts, change of direction, um, time. Mm. Like those were the big um, metrics for practices and then just like field sprinting and agility drills. So if they saw a decrease in performance – then their readiness would be down or how would they, how would they measure and say, Oh, your workload management is doing okay. Yeah. So there's like a kind of an algorithm in catapult that takes these different metrics and weights them. I I don't know what it is. I don't know if max velocity is more important than high speed cuts, but there is accelerations. Yeah. So there's like a composite score. Um, and they have, you know, over the four or five years they've tracked it, they have some targets where they want to see guys, you know, first day back from um, to summer training, I see. and then progressing that up to hopefully a baseline to hit fall camp. I see to have them prepared and different based on positions and stuff like that. Yep, different okay. based on position, um, a little bit different based on like age too, mm. and that's more in the weight room where you know if there's been a guy in the program for training five age, years, maybe. training age, okay. yeah, a guy that's been in their program for five years and has lifted with them for five years and technique is dialed and, right. um, you know, the adaptations to training have changed. He's going to have a different program than a 17 and a half year old oh, freshman sure. that just rolled out of being the best athlete in his in state high school. and, you know, didn't have the same, may or may not have had the same, you know, training load or, uh, training experience. Yeah. So that changed more in the weight room than with like the catapult field stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, all of that was being talked about in weekly meetings and, you know, how are we going to modify this lift or how mm. are we going to modify this run? Um, and then you can layer on top of like injuries and communication with the uh, athletic trainers and sports med right. world. And that gets a little more like specific to the athlete. But, right. um, so being in the middle of all that was super cool to see yeah, how it's cool. done. More of that sports science. I wonder if you could do some sort of readiness testing. Like, have you seen where you do like certain amount of taps in 30 seconds mm-hmm. and then if you see like a major decrease then maybe cns is not ready or jump vertical jump height i'm sure at the lower level they can figure something out yeah yeah and the the football team tracks vertical jump and they do like a nord board oh yeah um, uh, nordic curl hamstring curl um to track like you know hamstring force production and just like composite vertical force production um, and try to see if training load impacts it or if it goes down or huh. having more hamstring strains in a mm. summer or something to, and I think over time that's going to be more refined on what yeah. their cutoffs are. But as far as for like lower levels that don't have Nord boards laying around and force plates laying around and the budget for a sports scientist, I think some of those really simple kind of central nervous system Tests. Um, tests, yeah, whether it's the tapping or like a vertical jump or grip strength. Mm, grip strength, Or yeah. just even having like a subjective, you know, how are you feeling today? Yeah. Like put it on a scale. How did you sleep last night? Put it on a scale. Just to Nutrition. have something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sheesh. So at the U, uh, I'm just looking back to when I asked you what you're the most passionate about. And the, the most important, what you said was the most important impactful things are usually simple and boring. Would you say that not that it was boring, but obviously simple. They did a lot of simplistic things at the U. 
Yeah. And, and it works. And, right. And it's all, I guess it kind of depends on what your definition of simple is. Sure. For, you know, for a strength coach who's been doing it for a long time, a bench squat, uh, RDL, like those are very just core basic right. things. Um, it's not going to get you a million followers on TikTok. Right. You know, and that's unfortunately the world that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. Where flashy, like a bunch of weird equipment, doing things that nobody has ever seen, and then mm -hmm. having some loose rationale that's like promoted and gets exposure. Right. Whereas just like simple quality movement and like these big compound lifts that have worked for hundreds of years mm -hmm. and then progressively overloading it you know, giving deloads when you need to, um, simple things to strength coaches and to the outside looking in, yeah. it doesn't look like that much thought is going into it, yeah. but it really is. And those are the things that have the biggest returns Absolutely. over time. And I think there's so much that you can alter just with one movement. Oh yeah. Like progress and regress. So many things just on one movement. Yeah. Um, what's your experience been with the with the simple things with clients. Oh, I mean, it's great. It's, I mean, that's, that's all, that's all we do here. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like we lunge basically yeah. my, the program consists of split squat variation, hinge variation, squatting. I've kind of, we will squat, but my emphasis recently has been a lot of unilateral stuff mm -hmm. and different planes too. So go lateral lunge or squat, split squat, uh, roof or elevated, whatever. Um, and then we'll press, not much horizontal pressing. I've emphasized a lot more vertical pressing. Mm. Uh, we will still like bench and whatnot, but yeah, like just keeping it in then our poles, right? Vertical pole and horizontal pole. If you keep it just very simple and there's a lot you can spin off of that. Tempos, rep schemes, uh, total volume, intensity, work more dynamic, right? There's so much you can do just based off one thing, yeah. one exercise or one variation. And it's crazy. So, but yeah, like you said, that doesn't really get the hype, but the circus acts do. But that's know? what the best people are doing. Exactly. Like the best, you know, D1 football strength coaches are yeah. doing the meat and potatoes that work and then yeah. coaching it really well because um, they don't care about IG yeah. clout. Like right, they care right. about getting athletes stronger and keeping them healthy. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, the other thing that, that I think Utah does a, an awesome job of is, like, the culture of, like, just getting the job done and, like, working really hard, even if it's not your best day. Like, mm -hmm. you know, working hard for the guy next to you and kind of having that grit and grind. So they have, they, like, work those days in where they do a lot of, you know, supersets, monster sets, where it's high volume. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of those, you know, workouts that crush you because mm -hmm. you are – kind of overreaching a little bit but it's like strategic sure it's not just to break you down to break you down yeah it's like working on hey we just went through something super hard and we're probably gonna have to do this again um but that happens you know on a friday when you're gonna get four days to recover before another lift mm. um and it's built like a really strong culture of um like mental toughness and doing hard things at the right time yeah interesting. and understanding like the value of it I was talking to Justin Birch and he put, I guess I never really thought about it like this, but when the military does these military workouts or like, let's say the Navy SEALs when they do the hell week or something that's like two weeks long, the workouts that they do and the, what they put them through is not to 
build the mental toughness because it is insanely hard. Like it is workload management does not even matter. Yeah. It's not to build toughness, but it's to weed the weak ones out. Mm-hmm. Right. So like when you see that, you, I mean the, the U is doing it good or, you know, other schools will be doing that good because they manage how much they're doing. Right. They give them a little bit more, but not too much. Yeah. But if you bring it down to a high school level and, they lost a game and the coach is like, you're going to be running however distance for however long, like as punishment. Yeah. I just think what that doesn't really, that doesn't build toughness. Right. Right. Like that, that wheat that, I don't know. That's not good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you. It just like adds insult to injury. Yeah. Like not only are you (laughs) mentally and emotionally drained from a game, now you're going to be physically, physically emptying the tank. So the next practice or lift is of poor quality. Yeah. I don't know. There's some crazy things out there. And the simple things just, I don't know, need to get more traction. How do you, because you work with mostly high school athletes. Yeah, like 60, 70% high school. How do you balance the the education of that without stepping on too many toes or or Um, modifying where you're doing, knowing that the the load might not be managed? So... Like what, what, one of the first questions I'll usually ask somebody when they come in is how are you feeling? How does the body feel? They're like, good. Usually like you build this buy-in and this trust to where they'll say, oh, I'm tired. Like they'll tell you the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Which is important. But uh, recently I, I'm trying to say this without throwing anything under the bus, you know, but there have been instances where some of the clients that I coach, uh, and it's been mainly with like Olympic lifting, but for example, I'll say, uh, have you guys done clean and jerks and snatches in school? Yeah, we do them all the time. And then I'm like, great, let's do it. Show me, show me, show, show me a hang clean. And then I'll be shown this hang clean. And then I'm just like, like you just look at it like that to, to think that they do that a lot and that's what it looks like, or that's what they were taught. Like, I'm not saying like it's their fault. Right. But yeah. it's, it's the miscommunication and the miseducation. And this has been actually like this specific topic has been, has been a topic of conversation the last three people that I talked to, but it's that it's the miseducation and the fact that these sport coaches cannot coach you know, even a, a split squat, right? Or know what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So that to me is like, and then I'll kind of circle back around to the workload management, but that's getting that skill acquisition there is massive, right? So I'm not loading on dysfunction or anything like that. So then taking a step back with, with workload management, figuring out what season that they're in. Um, yeah, I don't know why that that tangent. I don't know why we went off on that tangent of Olympic lifting. It just fires me up. But <laughs> but then thinking about what season they're in, right? How many days a week they go for practice? How many days a week they go for games? Um, and then I severely, I could cut their volume in half, right? And just knowing that if they're going to lift in school, the last thing I want to do is add more load onto them. Yep. So I will cut their volume in half. We'll focus on things that are not very CNS dependent or uh, muscular dependent. And that's the other thing too that I think people need to realize is – if you're doing a one rep max at 90%, that on the CNS is more fatiguing than it is on the muscles. Mm-hmm. So when somebody's like, oh, I don't want to lift the day of practice or the day before a game because 
it's going to affect me physically. It won't based on what you do, right? Mm-hmm. If you're doing high volume, sure, like you're going to be you're going to be gassed. Yeah. But I mean, as maybe you know, there are there's research on kind of like a PAP type thing, mm-hmm. which is a post uh, activation potentiation on doing something heavyish the day before a game. I read specifically one on doing like a max bench press upper body before like a soccer game. Mm-hmm. 24 to 48 hours improves performance, right? And you know, th- that validity might be wishy-washy, but it's still there, right? Yeah. No, uh, 100-meter sprinters would do that. they like old lift school. heavy. Yeah, they would be- they would max bench. Great. Before they sprinted. Charlie Francis? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's where I'd heard it before. So there's yeah, there's there's something to that. And I think as a as a private sector coach or well, yeah, or a sport coach or a strength coach at the high school level, knowing all those things and knowing that everything that you put onto that person is stress, a te- taking a test, studying, sleep, nutrition, um, yeah, like stress levels at home or whatever. Yeah. It's all stressful. And it breakups. All leads, it's all workload management. Breakups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really, really, really. It's all, it's all part of workload management. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, you can, you can better understand that, I guess, if you understand the athlete. Yeah. And I think, do you know who Daniel Bove? Mm, yes. With the Pelicans. Yes. He yes. was with the Suns. Have you heard of his quadrant system? Um, I think I've briefly heard about this, but expand on that a little bit. So it's, it's just like a really cool system that, you know, how he, his thought process on doing exactly what you just said uh-huh. of categorizing specifically training stresses into different quadrants. So okay. when you're looking to lay out a week or a macro cycle or a season, um, it just simplifies stuff. So you can kind of put things in categories and plug and play so it's not as mentally fatiguing. So what would it look like? You obviously have four. Yeah, it's like, uh, and there's a couple different ones because there's one for like mechanical load and there's one up. for, gosh, what's the other load? I don't remember, but it's, it's basically volume intensity are the two axes. Quite and so system. you got oh, okay. high volume, high intensity. That's obviously like a really fatiguing day. Mm. You have your high vol or high intensity, low volume, which like you're saying could be a game day or um, it's going to tax the CNS, not going to wreck the tissues. Um, anyways, that's like, for me, that was helpful to read the book and, and take his course to have a little bit more of a system. And I think that would be so helpful for sport coaches to read for a, a guy that's doing it with, you know, the best team sport athletes in the world. Mm. Um, I sent, I gave that book to a friend of mine that's a high school basketball coach and loves it. And it just gives him some context and direction to make decisions on conditioning after practice mm. or a quick lift after a game. Um, that's pretty digestible as far as, content but i think it'd be really helpful for people so maybe similar to like uh, a high low model yeah okay yeah that's exactly what it is um and i think he like references charlie francis in it um yeah that is cool but yeah i would recommend that book to to any strength coach or trainer and yeah sport Sport coaches there has to be that yeah there has to be that because it's it's tough gap. like for you you have so many athletes at different places like if you were to try to communicate with every sport coach every week like that's yeah. impossible yeah or really hard yeah um whereas like larger format education to coaches will really serve athletes and mm. serve more athletes than just like people we're working with yeah 
Um, let's talk about sports special specialization. Yeah. Now, what's your take on that? Specializing, you mean by specializing in a sport so young? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean playing like only baseball from the time you're seven and playing it year round. Okay. And, um, yeah, just not a fan. Okay. Of, I mean, let's, let's talk about it. <laughs> um, I mean, when I look at, and I'm biased, my childhood, I played every sport I could, you know, and you played one sport till that season was over. Then you went to the next sport and played that. And all um, year round, you were playing a sport. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Um, which I guess you could critique that too. Like, you know, taking some more camping trips and, you know, yeah. singing in the choir or something <laughs> to be a yeah. little more well-rounded. But, um, from like a athletic development perspective, there's so much value in learning how to move your body in different ways for different sports and not just doing the same pattern over and over again for overuse injuries, for like the mental and emotional burnout mm -hmm. of basically having a job when you're yeah. seven um, and kind of the stress and pressure of achievement that, that comes with that. Um, at some point, like you do want to progress, you have to kind of make some sacrifices and focus more on one than the when other. When do you think that would be? Um, it's probably, it's different for each sport, right? If you're going to be trying to be a high level gymnast, like that's sooner than being a high level triathlete. Like that's early thirties, mid thirties for a lot of people when mm. they're peaking. And so it really depends on the sport. Okay. But I mean, seven is not the right answer, right, <laughs> in right. my opinion. So somewhere in the teens, yeah. right, when, you know, you're busier with school and busier with other things and the commitment to improve at one sport requires more time. Mm. Um, so Would you say that – now, I'm not, a, I'm not disagreeing with you because I, I, I agree with that. But would you say what if you have a – we'll put an age to a 14-year-old who – and this, who knows, this might be the right age to specialize, but I don't know either. But um, would you say, or let's say 10. You have a 10-year-old who loves baseball. That's all they play. Their dad is, like, trying to push them and play baseball in, in the major leagues. If they pick up strength training, could that be an alternative to a second sport? For sure. Okay. I mean, that's, because a, that's a skill. They're doing different things, right? Yeah, that's a skill. It's it's uh, um an off season and offload from the repetitive nature of the sport. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, builds healthy bodies and tissues and joints. Mm. And, um, yeah, huge fan. So that could be an alternative. That could be an alternative for cool, sure. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, just thinking about that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's like you said, the age can be dependent. It kind of depends on the sport, but a, very simple, well-designed strength program is yeah. always a benefit. Always. That's pretty pretty clear. Mm. And the, the tricky part, too, is that early specialization doesn't really show higher peak performance. Mm -hmm. Like, there's studies out of Scandinavia for different sports that later specialization leads to higher um, professional achievement. So that they showed early, mm. earlier specialization. You had a little higher amateur achievement mm. but later specialization you had higher like national international level oh wow did they do you remember what later was uh it wasn't huge and i don't off the top of my head i want to say like a year or two 
But when you think about a year from like 14 to 15 and a half or yeah, that's a huge change. In yeah. Like physical maturity, mental maturity, um, that, you know, is really significant. Wow. And fewer people quit their sport if they didn't. Because of burnout. Budget. Yeah. Oh yeah. I see that a lot actually. Yep. So if you start later or if you change sport, right. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And so it's not the right answer for everybody or there's like, there's a different answer for everybody, but mm. you know, thinking that if I don't specialize at 10, I'm not going to reach my greatest potential. Interesting. One isn't true. It might be like holding you back. And the other part that I mentioned, and when you asked me about this was um, like this fascination with whether it's going D1 or going pro or mm. going to college. Um, I feel like that takes like the good stuff out of sports Yeah. to me. Like what I remember about sports or like the friends that I made, like every close friend I have now was linked to sports in some way. Wow. And again, that's just my experience and other people have different avenues, but it's like the friendships you make, the discipline you gain, like the respect for a coach figure mm. or a leader figure, um, communication, personal development, like exposing to different cultures and different backgrounds. Like those are the things that you take with, mm. you know, for the rest of your life as a healthy, well-adjusted person. So you think kids are focusing on the wrong thing when they think they want to play at the D1 level? Uh, too much. Too much. Especially they think about it too much. Yeah. Okay. And I did too when I was younger, obviously like as hindsight's twenty twenty. Sure. Um, but in a, I feel like we're increasingly in a highlight reel society. Um, you know, inst- all these Instagram and TikTok posts of ball or, uh, you know, ball is life mixtapes and, mm. um, everything's a highlight reel. And like, that's what they're chasing is that picture of them signing letter of intent or, yeah. you know, posting, it's what everybody wants, you know, everybody wants, which is great. And having that goal is huge. Yep. But understanding that like, that's not the end all be all and a super small percentage of people get there and an even smaller percentage get to that next level where it's a career professional. Yeah. Um, and so if that's the only thing they see as success and don't get there, that's a huge letdown. It Absolutely. It kind of has a negative um, connotation on, to it. Yeah. yeah, on their on their experience. So, so I'm, I pulled up the NCAA. I posted this a while ago. And even though this isn't – like it's still data from NCAA. Uh, it's the estimated probability of competing in college athletics. Mm-hmm. And let's take, uh, I don't know, let's take football, for example. So out of 1,036,000, I'll just round it, high school participants, from that, there's 73,000 NCAA participants. The overall percentage from high school to NCAA, and that's D1, D2, D3, that does not include JUCO, is 7.1%. And then out of that, the percentage that goes to D1 is 2.8%. So if you think about of a million, over a million, and that's football, that's the largest number here. Uh-huh. You have uh, women's soccer, which is 390,000, and only 2.4% end up making it to D1. Mm-hmm. I mean, those those probabilities are not really in your favor, you know? No. So, <laughs> yeah. so you have to, I mean, do something to... I don't know. I mean, what was your, what was your process of from high school to University of Utah? Were you a walk-on or did you get? Yeah, I was a walk-on. Okay. Yeah, and I feel like at the time when I didn't have that perspective, I was pretty 
I came out of high school, I was planning on playing baseball at the U. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah, that yeah. didn't work out. And I was, like, pretty upset about it because that was my whole life. Like, oh, that's my goal. Like, when I play for a D1 team, that means my whole preparation was a success. Um, so I got to be a college kid for four years and do other things and play intramural sports and mm. learn how to ski and, like, get more into weight training and, and all this stuff. And then I got an opportunity to walk on um, and walking on after having some of that perspective change mm. of kind of, you know, quote unquote failing to get there and then have that like cool opportunity. Yeah. Um, so I felt fortunate in both ways to have that opportunity to play at the level I had always dreamed of, but to understand that like there's a whole lot of value in what I did up to that point. Right. Even when the baseball thing didn't work out. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, out of, it could be out of, the, out of what we've already talked about, or we could bring up something else, but uh, tell me something that kind of furiates you in, whether it's PT, strength conditioning, something in this field. I mean, it could be something non-related in this field, but yeah. what, what, what boils your blood? No, man, this is funny. A, a buddy of mine showed me a YouTube video yesterday that was like, uh, fix your shoulder pain in 10 minutes or something. Okay. And, and those like make me super <laughs> like that boils my blood. Really? Um, because again, it's like, it's clickbait. It's Absolutely. Sensationalizing things. It's kind of preying on people's insecurities and difficulties dealing with pain or, um, health or weight loss or, any of these things they feel like they can't really do on their own. Mm -hmm. And then they have, there's people that are, um, taking advantage of that mm. with, with or without the knowledge to actually help them. Yeah. Um, and just making it sound like they have the secrets, like, you know, somehow their five minute shoulder routine is better than someone else's five minute shoulder yeah. routine. Um, and it's just from a physical therapy perspective, it's not that simple. Like we're finding that that the experience of pain is so multifactorial mm. that it's not just it's not face pulls like that's not fixing your shoulder pain. Meaning like um, it could be social, it could be other psychological. Yeah. What is that? What is the biopsychosocial model? Yeah. So kind of referencing that a little bit when you say multifactorial. Yeah, and it's even gone beyond that. So just kind of the it used to be a very biomechanical model. Um, like the way you move yeah. influences X. Yeah. Right? Okay. And they, we'd, it'd be explained like your body's like a car. If a part's broken, it's not going to run right. Okay. Or if a part's like, if you break your arm, it obviously hurts. That just is like sure. simple to grasp. Um, and we've just extended, we did extend that to any kind of pain, any kind of dysfunction that there had to be a direct cause and effect of, something that's broken or dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. um, and then we realized, oh, well, you know, the, the psychological component plays a big role in the experience of pain. Mm. Social connections play a big role in how we experience the world and how we feel supported and how we feel like we have to deal with what's going on. Okay. Um, and I think from there it's even expanded. Like there's this graphic I have in my mind I'll have to send to you. But it's probably like, I don't know, maybe a hundred different things that all are, oh are surrounding that kind of, that impact the pain experience, um, that 
just fixing one exercise or doing one extra stretch or one secret move that some guru tells mm-hmm. you to do is just such a reductionist approach and doesn't appreciate the person. Um, and yeah, just, I don't know. It, it doesn't serve people and it serves these people that are putting the content out right. just for their views sure. and exposure. Um, wow. Whereas like having a conversation with somebody like, how does that shoulder pain affect playing with your kids and mm-hmm. playing a sport that you love or being independent or doing your job mm. and how like the stress that comes with that or the regret that comes with that mm. um, can impact their quality of life. And yeah. one exercise is not going to change that. And so that like really bugs me <laughs> when people, yeah. uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's true. Right? Expose, expose that. Yeah. Yeah. Just for money, quick money. Yeah. And the, the, the thing is, is, you know, a lot of times like the video my buddy showed me, I was like, I would do a lot of those exercises with a client that came into a shoulder pain, but we'd also talk about the other sleep, things and we'd talk about their nutrition and their hydration. And what is your training program? Like, like, do you have experience? Oh, you're doing shoulders seven days a week and playing tennis or, you know, yeah. all these things that are so far beyond a couple stretches that don't respect wow. the whole person yeah. that are just missed. Yeah. Um, and these like quick fixes that I think just sets everyone up for failure and yeah. makes the job of you as a you know strength coach and trainer and me yeah. as a therapist harder to kind of unlearn those and um, counteract some of it. And I think it's the real ones that can point it out, you know? Yeah. Because there's more than one person that will also do those kind of fraudy, <laughs> right? Like fraudy oh, for sure. plans or whatever. Yeah. Programs. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's been boiling my blood lately. I gotta, I gotta learn to stay a little <laughs> calmer when when I see them. Yeah. Um. Well, cool. I think this has been great so far. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to talk about or go over? I mean, the conversations have been there's been a lot of golden nuggets. Yeah. Um. I, one thing that we've you know we've talked about just because we've shared clients in the past and we kind of touched on it with communicating with coaches is how important I think that is between a strength coach and a PT or a strength coach and a doc or a strength coach and a parent um, is having that communication because if if we just work with the athlete in front Mm -hmm. of us or the client in front of us for that hour and don't consider it that's when you're doing you know four sets of 12 on uh, you know Bulgarians and they have a game that day right like you didn't get to know them or communicate and then it's you know performance goes down and we're not serving Mm -hmm. them um but when i can shoot you a text or you shoot me a text and say like hey so and so did this with me like i think this would be a good thing to work on or they've got a tournament this weekend um that's how like these partnerships help people yeah totally that helps immensely Um, just even communicating with like with anybody in the network of the of the athlete or somebody that you're working with you know yeah it's huge um and so just like you know, for, for you and I, that's been the big positive that, that I've seen in, in working with people like this. Well, it's been, I've been fortunate for you to move down here and, and have that connection, right? Because I didn't have anybody before. And now having a, a PT that, that I trust to send people to is great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
I'll send you somebody one of these days, man. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah, great. I agree. This has been good. Yeah, man. Finally, ha- finally having you in. We did it. I know. That's great. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, we'll have to, uh, obviously, you're more than welcome to come back and talk more about us, maybe like ACLs or something. Or That'd be sweet. Something, yeah, we can we can take a deep dive in that. Yeah, return to play. Just or... yeah, that that's that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Have a yeah, complete episode on that. We should also talk about uh, uh, sport specialization in the weight room. Mm, yeah, like yeah, that's what that I thought. That's that what I thought you were kind of talking about or meaning <laughs> with with sports special specialization, but that goes both ways. Yeah, yeah, sports specialization in the weight room could be. A great conversation. Maybe I'll be on your podcast for that one. Yeah, there we go. go. (laughs) Yeah, that'll be, that's great. Well, this is cool. I'm glad you were able to have a voice with this. That's what this is all about. Yeah. This podcast. Yeah. Thanks for getting this rolling to to let us, let us do that. Of course. Um, Where can people find you? Um, The easiest will be, so my physical therapy clinic that I work for is called Craft. Okay. physical therapy we're based out of holiday right now um, most consistently um, have a website craft is phys- I think craft physical therapy on Instagram um, and then my personal is Ryan Peterson PT underscore I don't know my social okay <laughs> let me see I'm, if I'm I can not on Twitter I'm not on TikTok. okay uh, so yeah Instagram let me see it is uh, Ryan Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N-P-T underscore. And I'll plug these in the uh, in the notes when I launch the podcast. Sweet. But that's it. Nothing else. No other social media. No Twitter. No TikTok. No, Why not? Uh, I don't know, man. Okay. <laughs> that's fine. I uh, I barely keep up with posting things on our uh, craft Instagram. So Cool. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, thanks again. Yeah, man. Thank you. It's been awesome.